On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about Aberdeen Avenue, the speed limit discussion, the parking, the all kinds of other things to try and control the traffic along there. That's coming up at City Council on Wednesday. But it's also, I think, step number one. This is not going to be the last place where this discussion comes up. What should we be doing in this city about traffic? Uh, We're also going to be chatting about millennials and cars. The rumors are, the stories are, the studies say millennials don't want to have a car. Don't know if that's true or not, but what happens to our economy if car sales suddenly go way down? Because it trickles into all areas of the Canadian and the North American economy. And then Don Robertson will be joining me, joining me to chat about, among other things, the stupidest decision the International Olympic Committee may have made this week. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. When you're driving down Aberdeen, are you in a killing machine that you're rocketing along like a highway star with pedestrians and cyclists at great risk for their life and limb? Or, and as a result, should we allow parking on both sides of the street, slow traffic, the speed limit down, essentially make it crawl along there between Queen Street and Longwood towards the 403? Or is this a major arterial route? that has been in place for a long time that allows people to feed down from the mountain towards the highway into the city when the LRT is built to have another street that people are going to drive on. Do we need to keep that where we can drive along and have the city from getting completely congested? That is the discussion that's going to be going on at city council tomorrow. It's going to come to a vote about which way council is going to handle this. And the debate around this has been, I don't want to say nasty, but on the one hand, you have had people pull out the, well, kids are going to die argument, which honestly, I'm sorry, kids are going to die is just a, it's an intellectually unimpressive argument, honestly. It, it, it just is. I'm sorry, because two things. First of all, during time when kids are walking along there during rush hour, have you ever driven along Aberdeen? You're, no one's flying along there. It's crowded. And second of all, in the last like 15 years... 14 years, something like that. There have been a total of 11 collisions. Now we don't want 11 pedestrian accidents. Nobody wants that, but this is not a death trap. This is not a death zone. I'm sorry. It just isn't. Nonetheless, the question becomes 18 is still more than zero and we want zero ultimately. So is the argument here that we want to slow this down and make this so that if you get on there, it's going to take you a, a while. And that's intentional. Or do we want it so that we have arterial roads that are driving through the city so people can move around? That's the discussion that's coming up at council tomorrow. I want to know what you happen to think about this because I'll tell you where I stand on this one and and I don't mind. If you had a road that, as I said, was clear and was dangerous so people were just flying along with no concern for people... That to me would be something you would absolutely want to look at. But in rush hour, you cannot drive fast on Aberdeen. You simply can't. And to now add extra layers of difficulty to it by reducing it, by allowing parking to reduce it to two lanes, one each way, no right turns, lower the speed limit. It it is going to cause all, and and, remember, this is the street that you're going to dump onto when you come down the Queen Street Hill. This is the street you're going to try and get off on when you get off at Aberdeen off the 403. You're going to back up the highway. You're going to back up everywhere. And what if there's an emergency? What if there's an accident? This to me seems like it's absolute overkill. What do you think about this? 905-645-3221, star 9900. You've heard people talk about it on the show, both sides of the equation. What do you think is the way to go on this one? 905-645-3221, star 9900. First caller today, a familiar name, a familiar voice. Uh, we don't often get city councillors calling into the show. We're glad he did. Uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead joins us. Councillor, how are you today? Great. Uh, great to be with you and your audience. Thanks. We're, I think I know where you stand on this. You've been pretty public about it, but what do you think about this? Well, I, I don't draw a line in the sand, but you know, the, the laughter of the urbanists will argue uh, evidence-based. Okay, let's apply evidence. So, as you indicated, uh, Aberdeen is an arterial road. It's also an EDR route. So, when the 403 is jammed, Gar Street becomes a parking lot. Scenic 
has over a kilometre already, whether four or three is blocked or not, uh, has from Garth all the way to Upper Paradise, a kilometre of uh, parked cars where uh, uh, kids are trying to run through uh, parked cars to get across the street or uh, um, uh, people can't even get out of the driveway. So I really have a congestion issue with or without the 403. Now, the question is, how does this solve that problem? And the question is, I don't think it does at all. Now, the second piece is back to evidence-based. Speeding at rush hour is absolutely asinine. They don't run together. In fact, the evidence clearly shows that speeding is very limited at peak hours, a.m., especially Monday through Friday. So that, that argument's gone. On the south side, uh, sorry, north side of Aberdeen, you have a boulevard. So when you talk about spatial uh, safety in regards to walking, you have a boulevard. I can understand the north side because there is no boulevard. It, the sidewalk is narrow and it, it busts very uh, straight on through the road. So no speeding. The accident rates during uh, rush hours are low. They, they raise, uh, so on pedestrian hits or, or accidents, I don't even know if there's, I don't think there's even been a death in 10 years, but it's 0.2 per million. Get, think about that for a moment. That's pretty, that's pretty low. I mean, that's, that's not a bad number. Of course, if people believe, uh, that the whole zero, uh, concept, and I've always had trouble because it creates false hopes and false expectations and everything's planned around this whole zero thing. The challenge with that is that you can never control people's behavior. I don't care what you design on the roads and how many millions of tax dollars you spend, you cannot defend against behavior. Counselor, I got to counselor, I have to jump in cuz I got to go to a break here and I do have the calls lining up behind. So I'm going to let you go. It is coming up a council tomorrow. You will have a chance and we'll be listening for you, but I thank you for calling in. I really do and I appreciate your time no today. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about Aberdeen Avenue. Tomorrow at City Council, they are going to be voting on whether or not to make significant changes to the way Aberdeen is handled. Lower speed limit, allowing parking on both sides so it'll take four lanes down to two, one each way. No right turns on reds. What will happen, and and I'm not saying this as a speculation, we can say what will happen is Aberdeen will become a very busy, very jammed, especially during rush hour, very difficult street to travel along. Now, the idea behind this from those who want that is that they want traffic to be slowing down because there are kids walking to school. There are a number of schools in the area and they say it is dangerous along there. So the question is, which side of this are you falling on? Terry Whitehead, counselor, called in just a moment ago. We know what side he's on. He'll be voting tomorrow. But what side are you on on this? Do you want the traffic intentionally congested to slow people down so it can potentially be safer? Or do you say, no, no, it's, it's fine as it is. Let's make sure we can move around in this city. Uh, pedestrians, we don't want accidents, but pedestrians should be also being careful as well on and on and on. Where do you stand? 905-645-3221, star 9900. A different Terry. I trust it's a different Terry calling in. Terry, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Thank Excellent. You it is a different Terry. How are you? I'm good. Thank okay. you for taking my call. No I problem. I close to the area of the Aberdeen, and I don't know if you're aware, they did put a light at the Jewish uh, synagogue. Yep. So that'll slow us down a bit. Right at Locke, right? Just around Locke? Yep. Yep. Okay. Before the Locke one. And also, there's the 40-kilometer flashing lights and the school light. That is a great thing, but if they go and pass this, it's going to be a parking lot. Like you've already said on your program, coming down Queen Street Hill, it's just going to back it up. It's going to back up on the highway. It's just a mess. Well, Maybe here, not. Terry, let me ask you a couple of questions really quickly. First of all, a couple times a year, maybe more, we have an accident on the 403 and people can't get around. And so what happens? They try to drive through the city. Well, now if this is like this and you can't really get off at Aberdeen because now Aberdeen is a parking lot as well. I I can't even imagine how backed up the highway is going to be. And the second point is, and this is the question part, what happens if there is an emergency in one of the homes uh, south of Aberdeen during rush hour? Now, you've already got both lanes, you've got parking, and then you've got both lanes jammed with cars. How How do the emergency vehicles get there? That's a very good question. That's the same as Herkimer. That's just the same answer. I don't have the answer. It's just like going to be like Herkimer. And my question to that is going to be, Terry, I really appreciate your call. Thank you for calling. My question to that is, 
if that were to happen, and if an emergency vehicle couldn't get through, who's responsible? Does that fall then on council if they vote to, to push this thing through? Does that fall on council? Is the responsibility if someone is in, because we're talking about injuries and people getting hurt by traffic. Well, what happens if by making new rules, emergency vehicles can't get there and someone suffers as a result? Is that then on city council for their decision? I don't know the answer. Maybe there's a back way through. Fred joins me now. Fred, how are you? All right. Uh, I'd like to speak to you. I know on up, I'm over on Upper Ottawa Street on the escarpment. Okay. And we have ambulance and we have fire trucks for here. And down, up and down Upper Ottawa Street every day, we have lots of traffic. Seeing that the Red Hills closed now, there's 75,000 come this way. But even still off the link, they come here every time too. Okay. Now, we have no trouble here because we don't have no parking on both sides of the street. Everything goes down. We got school crossing guards and we got stoplights on Upper Ottawa. And so it's the same idea they should do down there, on downtown. This, how long has this lady lived in Hamilton in that ward? Because she hasn't been there to see how stupid this idea. Well, she no, has. she she had, the councillors have lived here for a long, long time. They are aware. They are. I am convinced they are aware, and that's part of the idea that this is. A, intentional in their mind not negatively we're going to slow this down so it becomes safer that's their thought behind this that's stupid because right now tom jackson should vote against this because what we got up here everything's moving good with the ambulances fire trucks everything and what we have down here in upper ottawa in stone church they have at the end there before you get to the dump they have on they have no right turn on a red which everybody bumper to bumper i don't know why they did that Fred, Fred, I'm going to let you... That's going to happen, the same thing down there. Fred, thank you for the call. Got to go to one more. I got Tony here. Let me get Tony in before the break. Tony, how are you? Not too bad. How's yourself? Excellent, thank you. What do you think about this? Well, I go down there periodically that I go down uh, off the mountain, go down the Queen Street Hill, and I make a left-hand turn at the uh, Aberdeen. And then I take the curb. Uh, best I can because sometimes you get cars in there and then you have to swing around out of the cars. Uh, and I go all the way to Dundurn. One of the things that I did avoid is when I was coming back up and going coming back up the hill, because there is so like the right hand turn coming off of Aberdeen going up the hill, mm-hmm. I have seen so many rear end collisions. People trying to ease their way in, trying to make a right-hand turn, trying to make it on the red light, trying to make it on the green light, and it's just been a, a nightmare. Now, if you're going to put uh, put parking along that side, uh, the side, uh, the edge of the curb there, yep, you got twice as much traffic in one lane. That's like the Herkimer and Charlton. You're right, Tony. I got to go to a commercial. Thank you for the call. I really do appreciate yeah. it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are reports, uh, plenty of them out there, that say that millennials are less interested in owning cars and less likely to buy one. Here's a, a report that came out in April. New study says millennials are buying fewer cars than previous generations. Uh, whether they're less interested or whether they are just less likely because their lifestyle and they're in their jobs and everything else are not allowing them to buy a car. That's, that's, that's a parsing of the thing. It doesn't really matter for the sake of this. The question is, if fewer cars are being bought, what does this do to North America's economy? Because it seems a huge part of our economy is based on the auto industry. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. It's been a long time since we had Marvin on here. I appreciate you doing this, sir. Thanks for your time. Glad to be here. During, and my recollection is that during the bad, bad days of the 2008-ish recession, when President Obama went around to trying to salvage the economy and save it from going into complete collapse, that one of the first things he did was to bail out the auto sector. Why? Why was that so important? Well, GM and Chrysler, these were the two companies that were in financial problems, uh, are responsible for so many jobs, especially in the Midwest, 
you are probably well aware of the fact that Silicon Valley is in California. You also have a number of tech companies up in the Seattle area. But that rust belt, as we like to call it, Ohio, uh, the Michigan, places like that, they really rely on manufacturing. And if these companies were to go under, tens of thousands of people would be out of jobs, and, and they wouldn't necessarily have a route to another job in a different sector. That's why they had to be saved. But there were other industries that were also heavily affected by the recession. Clearly, the fact that so much of an effort was put into saving these ones, I think, speaks un- to, the, to the underlying point of how important the auto industry is to North America and to Canada. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, again, to give you a different example, there were some banks that were in trouble, and we didn't jump to bail out the banks the same way we did with the manufacturing sector because it just it, it so much grinds away with our economy. Roughly, the, the manufacturing sector for cars is responsible for about 10% of the GDP of the country. So if they were to fall apart, if that was to suddenly disappear, that's a big dent to have to replace from other things. So let, let's play a game here. And based on these studies, and there have also been studies, by the way, just to be fair, There have been studies that say, no, no, these studies are wrong. Millennials are every bit as interested in getting cars. I don't know which one to believe, but we're we're playing the hypothetical here just in case. Uh, Let's say that car sales over the next 10 or 15 years drop by 10%. Let's say that was the amount that millennials decide that 10% fewer millennials and other generations were going to buy cars. Walk us through, Marvin, we'll start. We're going to have to go to a break in a couple of minutes, but start this. Walk us through where the, how this would play out, what the impacts would be on the different sectors. So uh, let me do this. I will probably do this after the break because I want to. I just want to change your premise ever so slightly here, just so the people know the background. In the year 2000, in Canada, we sold 1.5 million cars. Today, we're selling over 2 million cars. To date, there has been absolutely no sign that people are buying fewer cars. Even though what you're talking about, we call it anecdotal evidence. We meet people and one-on-one they say, oh, yeah, I moved to Toronto and I don't have a car. While we're hearing that, we're not seeing it matched in car sales. And, and the question is, is it simply you know, some nice people telling good stories or is there a trend? We think, for instance, that if there is a significant shift, that 10% decline you're talking about probably won't happen uh, quickly. It could take more than 10 years, 15 years for it to materialize. And, of course, by that point, the population is bigger. We're just not sure if we're going to see it at all. But I think the other thing we've noticed with millennials is that they talk a good game until they have children, and then suddenly everything changes. The love of the urban lifestyle, the the public transit-driven lifestyle changes. They eventually do want their little piece of suburbia, and that's when they go out and buy a car. So we don't think they're going to not buy cars. At most, they're just going to delay when they acquire their first car. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business about well, it's a confusing one because there are studies that say millennials are saying they don't are not interested in buying cars. And then, as Marvin said just before the break, there's no evidence of that yet. But not to, uh, it's not about creating a, a hypothetical panic thing, Marvin. It's about just right. the, the impact of the auto sector on our economy. And, and I, it, it's walk through, because again, if, yep. the, if the numbers were ever to dip, or frankly, if they were to rise, how it could benefit us, what are all the areas? Where would this, all the areas this would touch? So let me just go back to before the break. I said that we buy roughly 2 million cars a year in Canada. So a 10% change is 200,000 cars. Let's assume for the moment that we lose 200,000 cars. Millennials aren't buying as many of those. What does that mean? Right off the bat, 200,000 cars would represent about $6 billion of economic activity directly, and then there'd be all the other spin-offs that come from that. It's not that hard to get to a number of 12 to $15 billion. In terms of employment, uh, you might remember there is a plant, Oshawa, uh, closing later this year. That was a GM plant that made specifically cars. It didn't make trucks or SUVs, and they're closing it. Well, it had the capacity of roughly 200,000 cars a year, so you'd be closing a factory like that. Of course, because you're not making as many cars, you're not ordering as many auto parts, so nice people like like Magna or David Braley's companies wouldn't get the same number of orders. They would likely lay off a shift. They wouldn't need as many workers there. So you can see that spinning effect as we go. And now, obviously, it would make a difference if the cars they were buying or weren't buying were domestic or imported. Maybe there would be uh, uh, factors hitting uh, Germany or hitting Japan more than hitting locally. But it, it would amount to be somewhere between 15 and $20 billion of economic activity. And that's a, the kind of a ripple that would certainly be felt in our economy in a big way. 
And that's not even touching on then what you get after that with the oil and gas industry, I suppose, and with then the tax dollars coming into the federal and provincial and municipal governments and everything else. And, and like it, Exactly. It is... It, it's amazing to think because we don't. Uh, you think of the car industry and you think of again GM or whatever, and you just think, oh, that would affect them. It's it is invasive. It's everywhere in our society. Right. You mentioned taxes, so obviously there's there's taxes paid to have a license. There's taxes paid when you buy gasoline. There's taxes on toll roads. Uh, then there's insurance and all the stuff that goes with insurance: car maintenance, car repair car accidents, fewer cars on the road, maybe that would mean fewer accidents, but there are businesses like CarStar that rely on helping to maintain our cars. They would all be affected by this. Now, having said that in a negative sense, clearly if the population is there and they're not buying cars, what are they doing instead? So where do we get the pluses? Well, it would be public transit. Uh, For many years here in Hamilton, we've talked about the declining ridership of buses. These people would be getting on buses or LRTs. Or what we like to talk about is transportation as a service, meaning they'd be using taxis or Ubers or Lyfts or some of these cargo car sharing services. Uh, and so they would, some of that would get picked up by other services. It wouldn't totally be lost to the community. And maybe the other bit of good news from a sustainability standpoint, if people truly adopt an urban lifestyle, meaning they recreate where they live, then that is actually a more sustainable lifestyle than people who commute for an hour a day and drive all those great distances. If we work and live and play all in close proximity, it's actually better for the environment. So there could be some things that way on pollution that would be a good positive benefit of having fewer cars on the road. If you were the president of one of the car companies, though, uh, and again, these are anecdotal reports we're getting, these studies, but if you were a president of a car company, what would you be doing right now to prepare yourself in case these things turn out to be in any way true? Mm -hmm. So clearly I'd be talking a lot to this generation to measure these attitudes and see, is it a temporary thing? Okay, you don't want to buy a car when you're 21, but maybe you want to buy a car when you're 30. Okay, that's one thing. It's a delay. Or is it a permanent change to your behavior? The other thing I'd be doing, and that's what the car companies are doing, are looking at these autonomous vehicles, these Mm self-driving vehicles, because we actually think the future of organizations like Lyft and um, Uber is not me driving shifts, kind of acting like a taxi service in the off hours, but actually fully uh, autonomous vehicles, no driver behind them, that you could summon with your smartphone, pick you up when you need it, take you where you need it, and then they would just keep cycling around. If that's what we're going to, where we see transportation not as something I have to own, but as a service I use when I need to use it, then I've got to be developing vehicles that can handle that. Same thing, by the way, on the delivery side. If the future is that some person doesn't come to my house with a pizza, but some autonomous vehicle brings me the pizza with an oven in the back door, and then I push a button and get access to it, I've got to have the vehicles that will do that, because if it's not the car company, it will be people like Google, it will be people like Amazon, they're working on that technology. Therefore, if I'm GM and Chrysler and Toyota, I've got to be working on that too. Do you see the evidence that the car companies are doing the right things? Yes, although it varies. There are some that are, I'll call them more on the leading edge, and there are others like Ford who've been a little more reticent to get started. I think they're all getting into the fray, either independently or joining forces, partnering with other people as it goes. And and really, I call this the wild, wild west in the cars, because we really don't know how either electric vehicles or self-driving autonomous vehicles are going to play out. You can imagine it in a science fiction-y kind of way. You can imagine the film and all these sort of electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles. But how do we get from here to there, and how autonomous are they really, and how electrified are they really, and so on and so forth? No one knows, and so I think we're in for a turbulent time starting maybe in, let's say, 2025 and going for the next 10 years to 2035. There's going to be upheavals. We're even going to probably change the definition of what it means to drive a car. If it is a self-driving car, why can't a 12-year-old be in it? Or why can't a drunk person be in the car? If they're not actually navigating the car, changes the whole concept. And I think those are the kind of issues that we'll see, not in the next year or two, more to 5 to 15 years down the road. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys Hockey Club of Calm Choice Realty, uh, who's normally here Mondays at this time. It's not Monday in case you think, hey, maybe I was having surgery and was under general anesthetic. What day is it? Uh, it's Tuesday, but yesterday you were out 
threatening people's lives on a golf course. <laughs> it certainly endangered some people. Wow. I remember it was a right uh, alley for kids, Ryan Ellis's uh, National annual. National Predators defenseman, yep. Yep. Annual uh, good uh, Frilton kid doing wonderful things for uh, underprivileged parks and kids in the city of Hamilton. And uh, they they do yeoman's work. It's wonderful. And the very funny Jim Ralph is the MC and a number of other uh, Wendell Clark and a bunch of other guys. I remember 20 years ago when I'd go to these tournaments and everybody would shoot and then they would generally say, well, you, you hit last. Let's get a good one out there. Well, I don't shoot last anymore. <laughs> <laughs> See, I always thought that the good, you get the good guy to hit first so everyone can relax knowing there's a ball in play and then... Well, I'm not even that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was never that guy. I was the guy three. that could hit it 275, and now when I just smoke it, it'll go 220. So. I, I hope I haven't told this story before because I don't want to bore everybody, but I am I am a tr- tremendously horrible golfer. <laughs> I am really not good. I don't, I don't have time. I don't golf much. But I played in one tournament after the Canadian Open back in 2003. They had a media day, and I wanted to play at Hamilton. It was at the Hamilton Golf Country Club. I wanted to play with the PGA setup, just to see what it was like. So off the tips, go way back to the PGA tees and with the narrow fairways and the deep rough. And I told the guys I was golfing with who were big-time sponsors that I'm awful. And if it, today, if at any point my golfing is going to cause you to not enjoy your day, it's okay. Tell me. I'll pick up my ball. I'll just drive along in the cart. It's okay. And it was a shotgun start. And if you know Hamilton, number two is a pretty long hole along the back of the course. Don, I got up. I, I don't know, number two, number three, whatever it was. First ball I hit was, no exaggeration, 290, 300 yards right down. I've never hit a golf ball like that in my life. Bolt straight, right down the middle. And then I get up and I hit the next one and I drop it 18 inches from the pin with an approach shot. And all the guys are like, yeah, sure, he doesn't he's a, doesn't know how to play. Those were the only two good shots I hit all day. <laughs> Set the bar pretty high early, eh? Uh, they were looking at me like, yeah, sure, he can't play. Uh, they quickly found out that that was complete and utter luck. Never did that before, never did it since. How'd you shoot 127? I birdied number two. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It would have been 144. <laughs> and that would actually be a really good score for me. Uh, you know, Don, there was some news today. There's a bunch of things I want to get to from today that happened. But number one on the list, I have come to the conclusion that the gentlemen, and I think it's almost all gentlemen, there may be some women, who wear the blue jackets and are on the board of the International Olympic Committee, someone must have been piping funny tobacco into their meeting room today because they voted today that in 2024, when the Olympics are in Paris, are they in Paris? Wherever they are, in Paris in 2024, breakdancing is going to be an Olympic sport. That was only a matter of time. Till till they lost their minds? Is that what you mean? <laughs> Breakdancing. Well, Rick I, Zamperin earlier today, his comment was, they're 30 years late. What, are we in 1985 again? Wow. Breakdancing. Well, don't they have to take things out? No, they can now. Apparently, they can just keep adding stuff. Because uh, I think in the olden days, to yes. add a sport, you had to take a sport out. I would be really anxious if they had to kick one out to like let break dancing in know what that <laughs> yeah, would that, be could you imagine and and what what country at this point after the announcement is favored to win gold yeah, well i'm just picturing the announcement of which sport is being removed because whoever that association well, is is marching on the IOC's head office with pitchforks and torches. Sorry, <laughs> you took out wrestling for breakdancing? Take out the 100-yard dash. Yeah. Or 100-yard yeah, dash. 100, meter 100 meters. Still. I don't think they call it dash anymore either, but it was, yeah, take that out and throw breakdancing in and see where your ticket sales go. I don't even understand, and now I know you and I are old. I get it, but it's not even a sport. It's athletic. I'm not arguing that the athleticism of what you do, it's very athletic, but it's, it's not a sport. How do you, how do you, I mean, it's like rhythmic gymnastics all of a sudden, give them a ribbon and it's one step away from rhythmic gymnastics. I was going to say that's a popular sport now. I don't get that either. I mean, it is like, well, have they not had ballroom dancing in? No, they talked about it. I don't think they ever did it. They never, they never actually brought it in as a sport. 
Well, they've got breakdancing, and I mean, you can't you can't cut the ballroom dancing. No kidding. Out. How about line country line dancing? Team yeah. team line dancing. I'm with I'm with uh, Rick on this. I mean, what is this? The it's like the disco seventies. <laughs> Why not disco? Yeah. Why not cha cha? Bring the BG. The Charleston. Back. We can have all of it. Moonwalking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We have, we have. On the death of Michael Jackson. Well, we have, yeah, that's true. The 10th anniversary. We have, we have race walking. Why not moonwalking? You have to run, the, you have to do the whole course backwards. backwards with two feet on the ground at all times. Break dancing. Wow. Wearing one glove. Well, the expense of it. I can, I wonder where our tryouts will be. Well, I was seriously thinking of taking a two year leave of absence just to work on my break dancing so I could try and make the national team. You think the two years will do it? No. <laughs> But I could probably, I have a nice smooth head. I could spin on it without my <laughs> hair getting in the way. I, I mean, what do you need to break dance? You need a cardboard box that you've cut and flattened and a, be, a boom box. I yep. got both of those things. <laughs> Equipment wise, I'm good to go. You're all set? I'm good to go. It may take off. I mean, you shouldn't belittle it. I mean, I don't even know where they do it now. They like, don't have, they don't, 2024, baseball is not going to be in, softball is not going to be in, uh, squash is not going to be in, racquetball is not going to be in. So they're taking a bunch of legitimate sports out. And this is in. Why would they take softball out, fastball out, as a former fastball player? But they've also, by the way, today, it's not just, uh, t- to the point, it's not just breakdancing, they've added surfing, rock climbing, and uh, what was the other, skateboarding. So you add surfing, which would now mean Toronto can't bid for the Olympics. Well, Paris, where's Paris's surfing venue? Are they going to like have a, a satellite place in Hawaii? <laughs> it's the it's the Paris Olympics, but the surfing venue will be in Perth. <laughs> I mean, it, the, sir, Paris has no surfing, so I I don't even understand some of this stuff. But it's clearly it's it's all about getting a younger audience. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. But All the kids talk about is breakdancing now. <laughs> it's, again, what is this, 1985? You go into a gym now, I'm sure that's just full of kids breakdancing. I, I just, uh, but again, I picture this is a bunch of old European folks, men and women, who think they're really hip going, I have a great idea. I heard about this thing called breakdance. Let's bring in the breakdance. The kids they, today, they love it. They saw a documentary on it or something on CNN. Well, yeah, but some, some group has had to make the presentation. They don't just sit around and smoke wacky tobacco and say, why don't we try this? Well, they have in the or past. Or why don't we have surfing in a, in a location that doesn't have an ocean or waves? Would you not? Here's the thing. If you're going to be bringing in... M- quote, quote, modern, because breakdancing, I, I, I don't even know if anyone does it anymore, honestly. Someone's going to call me up and tell me, I, I said to someone, I wrote a piece for tomorrow's paper, it's online right now. I said, I'm probably going to get emails and phone calls from a whole bunch of dance parents tomorrow. My my nine-year-old is working on his breakdancing and he's going to be in the Olympics. Okay. Um, if you were going to add something to try and get kids involved, why would you go this route as opposed to American Ninja. Have you ever seen the American Ninja thing on TV where no. they do the, It's an obstacle course and it's all strength and it, it's cool. Why not change the name of American Ninja but just do something like that where it's a strength and endurance and uh, do gladiator, like not with lions and maces and everything, but I mean the, the TV show that The Rock does or do do the, the, the CrossFit or something. Like do something that is sports, that is identifiably a sport. That you can have a winner without judging that no one's ever going to understand. Maybe one of the reasons they took things like baseball and, and fastball out is because it's too easy to determine the winner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's no judge. I, I'm trying to picture who's going to be the play-by-play person on the coverage. Grandmaster Flash is coming out of retirement to do uh, the break dance. Foster Hugh would be good. We get, <laughs> we get Jim Ralph to imitate Foster Hugh doing it. Have Bob, Bob Cole, Cole do it. He's got nothing going on right now. And and Bob McCown, he can do it as well. Bring the two of those guys together to do. Uh, they're both looking for work right now. I I just I, I I just I have no understanding of what the Olympic people are doing, or how they think that this is the solution. They're 
I didn't realize it, but there are 319 events in a bunch of different sports. I think it's like 28 sports, but there's 319 events. So like swimming has, I don't know, 15 or 20 different yeah. things. 319. If you are a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, if this is the audience you're going after, if you're that age and you can't find something in 319 events that fits, that piques your interest, you're probably not the audience they're going after anyway. It really isn't. Well, they generally go after 18 to 32 in the advertising business, right? I mean, that's kind of a popular... Are those people going to be dying for breakdance? Well, that would be my question. I mean, are they going to do it in spandex or... I, and Well, they can't put sponsors on your shirts. I still want to know where the tryouts are for Canada. Well, I couldn't find... I, I went looking today briefly. Because ComChoice Realty is looking for some unique advertising sponsorship opportunities. So maybe we could snap that up. I I went looking today to see if there was a national organization, a Canada Breakdancers? Breakdancing Federation or something. And you really had to look? You didn't know? I, no, I couldn't find one. Now, I think there's a dance federation. It probably falls under that. But... Why this, I mean, again, why this? Why not hacky sack? There was a guy from Dundas years ago, Jordan Moyer, one of the world's best hacky sackers. Let's do that instead. Let's do, it's all now just a thing of what is the craziest thing we can come up with? And, and if nothing else, they've done one thing right. And that is everybody's talking about the IOC and the Olympics today, and they normally wouldn't be. Yeah. And there has to be one more vote on this, and it'll be next year at the Olympics, apparently, and they will have one more final, final vote about whether or not breakdancing is going to win. Maybe this is all a big lark they're playing on us. Well, did, um, in the past, I went to the 88 Olympics in Calgary and went to Father Bauer Arena, which was, um, no, that wasn't Olympic size. It's where they played hockey. It was the Olympic size ice surface, I guess. And they had, as a demonstration sport, short track speed skating. Which I thought was pretty cool because mm-hmm. it's not roller derby, but it's there's some bumping on ice and it was fast. It was, but I was a, my point is it was a demonstration sport to see how well it went over and how well it was received. It'd be interesting to see the research been, that's been done on breakdancing. Well, there was also a short track speed skating, a way to determine who won. That's what I mean. <laughs> no, but there was a it, it was a true sport. That, yeah, they like judging. They, the Olympics seem to love judging, and the the problem that I always find with that is every Olympics there is some massive, enormous scandal or controversy around judging. You would think they'd be trying to get rid of sports. Let's have fewer sports where we know we're going to end up in a pile of steaming yak dung. And yet they embrace these things and bring more and more. Who Who's going to be the judge for breakdancing? You know, like bringing Paula Abdul and J-Lo? I mean, I don't know. Who does this? Who... who how do you determine what the grades are? Anyway, I just I, I just laughed at this today because it's just so ridiculous. It's just so ridiculous. There's a million different things you could have put in there before breakdancing. So you're going to vote no? I'm going to give given. the I would give the vote on no on this one. I, as I say, there's there's a bunch of sports that I would love to see in the Olympics. If you're if you insist on adding new modern untested in the Olympics anyway stuff. There's tons of stuff on TV that you would say, oh, that would be way better. Based on popularity, though, let me go back to fastball. That one really annoys me. Fastball's pretty big in U.S. colleges. It's pretty big in Canada. Japan. Right. China. Australia. New Zealand. Yep. Um, Those are pretty popular sports to dump for breakdancing. And I'm not saying one has anything to do with the other. But you get out of a kind of a world sport for breakdancing, and baseball is played around the world. I don't get it. Well, mm-hmm. they didn't call, so they didn't what call. do you expect? They didn't ask me. However, set your PVRs five years hence. Boy, that'll really boost up the, the uh, television rate cost fees. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like what? they're going to be saying, all right, we're, if we have to carry break dancing, we're giving you no money. Well, no, they're going to charge the same rights fees that they would have in 1985. <laughs> Because that's when it was from. Anyway, break dancing. Enjoy. Uh, yeah, uh, Ben just says, we just had a call. I th- he thought it was for the quiz question, but someone that 
is a friend of yours, I don't know who, but just called Ben and said, break dancing, we need pole dancing. Sounds like a friend of mine. Mm. I, I'm not. I'm not sure that one's going to land in the Olympics. But now there is. There is that would create more interest. There is non-stripping pole dancing now. People that there's fitness things that people do pole dancing. Why? <laughs> what do you mean why? I, I, I don't see. Well, who knows? I, I say I don't see the Olympics adding it. Why not? Who knows if they'll add that one? Suddenly you end up with. With pole dancing, and of course, the Olympics now have to, with all of their different events, it has to be men's and women's versions, so you could have a male pole dancing competition. Well, I would I would put Russia and Romania in the lead right off the bat before we even start. They're very proficient at that. At male pole dancing? Did I say male? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was talking about. Oh. I, don't, I have no idea what country is proficient in male pole dancing. <laughs> I didn't mean male. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson is in studio, usually on Monday. Today it was Tuesday. Today is Tuesday because Don was golfing yesterday. Poorly. First 18 holes of the year. I know the answer to the quiz question. Well, don't too. give it away. You, I know you do because you told what, me. What's the second one? It's a full moon. Well, the, no, it's the, uh, there are two full moons in the same month. What is the second one called? Oh. Don't, don't give away the answer. I won't. Uh, NHL, the Hockey Hall of Fame, not the NHL, we sometimes say that, the Hockey Hall of Fame announced its class of 2019 today. Did you hear who went in? Wickenheiser. So Haley Wickenheiser, who was, this is, I, I would think, I would say without question, the first time that the one shoe-in guaranteed lock candidate was a woman. Haley Wickenheiser was, there was no question she was going in. Pro- arguably, and maybe inarguably, the, ba- the best women's hockey player of all time. So no 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 question he was going in, but after that former Toronto Toro. Well, here, here's the rest of the list. Um, where are we? Where is our list here? Uh, Haley Wickenheiser, Guy Carboneau, Vaclav Nedomansky, and Sergei Zuboff are going in as players. Uh, Zuboff was good. <clears throat> Hall of Fame good. I, I, I can tell you honestly that never once when he was playing did it cross my mind that Sergei Zuboff was a Hall of Famer. Well. One All-Star, one-time All-Star, and he won a couple Stanley Cups. That's a team thing, though. And I think that's wrong, but it, it's, it, lots of times people, well, he won't get it. He never won a Stanley Cup. I don't think a Stanley Cup should be the, it helps. It doesn't, doesn't hurt. It, if, if you're on the border. <coughs> It's going to maybe get you in. Sure, or an Olympic gold medal or yeah. whatever else. There's some, a championship, but I, this to me is probably, there's two things about this. It's probably the least whelming, the most underwhelming class ever, except for Haley Wickenheiser. Clark Gillies got in. I know. That no, was no, a soft year. But, he, but there were other people who got in with him. Yeah. Not one. My question is this. Vaclav Nedimansky last played, he's 72 years old. He last played over three decades ago. What has happened that all of a sudden Which, today he is suddenly a Hall of Famer? Now, he, I'm sure he's a lovely man. If I recall correctly, when I grew up, I played road hockey with him one time. When he was with the Toros. When he was with the Toros. And well, that, that alone should get him in. Yeah. But Zuboff, a nice player, maybe a, a very good player. But why not just do what baseball does sometimes with the hockey athlete? Why is it so difficult for them to say, you know what, we don't have a class this year, or we only have Haley Wickenheiser, or every time you do something like this, it seems to me you bring the bottom down a notch and you say, we've just lowered the bar for who gets in. This is totally underwhelming to me. Well, and, and like all Hall of Fame lists, some of the creative talk is... You compare them to guys that didn't get in this year, that were eligible, that seemingly have better credentials than the guys that do get in. Vincent LeCavalier. Would he not have been ahead of Zuboff for you? Yes. The interesting, uh, I mean, some of the interesting things is too, and you you bring the point up, and I'm sure we talk about it every year, but Nedimansky. So what has he got better at in the last 30 years, or is the class dwindling and the bar getting so low that they can start letting those guys in. He was first eligible in 1987. So and, it has been And 30, wasn't good enough then. 
or over the next 32 seasons, over the next 31 seasons, he was not deemed so, to be good enough. So look at who he's leaped over in the last 32 years to now qualify. Interesting. I, I would have been very happy. I don't think anybody would have complained. Maybe they think somebody would complain. I don't think anyone would complain if you had said, you know what, this year it's Haley Wickenheiser. And she falls into the... Some people said, someone said she was the Wayne Gretzky of women's hockey. That, I, don't, I don't put her there. I don't think she was that far ahead of everyone else that she becomes that. But I would argue that she was the elite of women's hockey. She's the best of women's hockey. So there would be no shame in her going in by herself. Alone. Yeah. Alone. What would be the shame in that? Um, I'm glad to see uh, former Hamilton Red Wing uh, Jimmy Rutherford going as a builder. Yeah, and the builder category, that's that's a different thing altogether. And I think that you can make the case easily that Jim Rutherford is a guy who has yep. done things. Now, speaking of builder. Fran Ryder should have went in. Well, there is still the most, in my mind, the most egregious oversight in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And it continues on, and it will continue on, I'm sure until the man is dead and then somehow they the light bulb will go on and they'll go, oh, he should go in. Donald S. Cherry. How is Don Cherry not in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Hockey Hall of, not, not as a coach, not as a player, as a builder or even in the media wing. How is Don Cherry not in the Hockey Hall of Fame? I hope they don't put him in after he's gone. They will. Yeah, I know. They, they will. will. They'll Same wait till he's Pat dead. Pat Burns, that was the dumbest Pat thing. Quinn. Holy crap. The Pat Burns one is still enraging because they knew he was going to go in. They knew he was a candidate that was going to go in. He got in the very next year after he died. They knew he was going to make it. And and he he had a long struggle with cancer. All they had to do was the right thing. They could have said, yes, he's... It's the, it's the Nedimansky thing only different because Nedimansky is 32 years later and you suddenly say, okay, what happened that he's gotten better? Burns was a guy who everybody knew was going in. And the fact that they were so, whatever the word is, to not get him in that year, to me was callous. It was cowardly. It was all kinds of things. Anal. It was, it was dumb. I and think it was unforgivable because the guy, that, that would have been his last yeah. thing that he would have known that he had gone into the Hall of Fame. And everybody in the hockey business would have loved it. No one would have, even if he, even Scott, if, if his credentials weren't quite up to the standard, everybody liked Pat Burns. So even if his coaching wins, I mean, he won a Stanley Cup, even, even if he had not accumulated coach of the year, if he'd not done all that and just been a really good coach, they'd like to see him win because he was a good guy. But he was qualified. Of course he was. He was the guy who had the numbers. And everybody, and, as you point out, knew he was going in. So where I think as I sit here in the, um, what they call a smelly little studio. It's not that bad. No. There's <laughs> no rose petal though. Um, when you get Nedimansky to come in, I stum- sometimes think that, that so many of these people say, we need to do this so it looks like we're doing the right thing. You know what I mean? We need, he was a check, I believe. Yeah, he, he, he uh, defected and he was one of the first to do it. Like there's, re- there's, there's stuff behind his story that is interesting and that is but it's impressive. Not but it's exactly. They didn't just discover this. His hockey credentials haven't improved dramatically, maybe slightly over since he retired, but I say sarcastically, but they haven't gotten any better. But sometimes I think they stretch to make sure we're doing the right thing. But go back. To, okay. So if we're doing the right thing, I go back to how is Don Cherry not in the hockey yeah. offense? Or and, how and did they miss Pat Burns? So, yeah. I understand that some people listening right now say, I hate Don Cherry. I don't like what he has to say. I don't like the way he says it. I don't like, that's fine. We don't expect you to. What his, his thing in hockey has been to be an outspoken guy, which is always going to mean some people like him and some people don't like him. But Don, it's the Hockey Hall of Fame outside of Wayne Gretzky and maybe even right now more than Wayne Gretzky. Who is more famous in hockey than Don Cherry? Well, nobody is. Absolutely if, no if one. Don Cherry and Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, walk into a room side by side, where who, which person are the most people walking to? You may have just You may have just found the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame. He's too popular. Yep. If that if that's the reason, it could be. 
if that's the reason, then every single person who doesn't vote for him on that board should be ashamed of themselves for being so small. And I don't, I, I don't like to believe that that's the reason why. I don't know what the reason is why. If uh, Gary Bettman and Don Cherry are both introduced at the, or the uh, Scotiabank Arena at the opening game of the Toronto Maple Leafs next year, the roof goes off the building when they introduce grapes. Yep. And they probably boo Bettman. And the roof goes off that way. And Batman's in. But Batman doesn't have a say in the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's the problem here. Uh, he may be working some channels back door. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. But the reality is, though, there, this is supposed to be independent of the NHL. It's not the NHL Hall of Fame. It's the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, I, and he, he, here's the worst part to me. Baseball Hall of Fame, the writers have a vote. If you've been covering it, the game as a beat writer for 10 years or I can't remember what the other thing is, you can get to be a a Baseball Writers of America member and you get to have a ballot. But your ballot is public. So we know who, if you were a member, we know who you voted for, we know who I voted for, and so if I leave someone off who's a guarantee guy, you're going to have to answer that question. Hockey Hall of Fame answers nothing to nobody about anything. They don't even tell you who's nominated. Right. So you can't... Let alone how, how the voting went. So you can't ask them, why is Don Cherry not in? They'll tell you, we don't talk about candidates. Which to me, okay, fine. You don't talk about candidates. So that means that if you are not willing to stand up and explain that there is a reason why someone is or isn't, we can only then guess. You're not helping us. We're asking you. People have asked and we won't get an answer. Therefore, you can only make assumptions and make guesses. And... Don, every assumption and every guess only leads to inexplicable things. Don Cherry absolutely should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. It is absolutely unquestionable that he is the most famous person in the game right now, probably, or at least in the discussion, has contributed to the game. In How many times have, has hockey been discussed at the workplace after Don Cherry has something to say? Way more than the game itself. I uh, talk to guys that cover the game. Um, back in the 90s when uh, the Bramper Smoke were affiliated with the Leafs. And a guy said to me, if you go to the press box, see what happens at the end of the first I've period. watched it. I've watched it. And I- as soon as Coach's Corner comes on, every scribe and every media guy, they all go to the TVs to see what Don Cherry is going to say. It, it, That's respect among the media, whether, whether they want to see a train wreck, but he is much-watched TV. It makes no sense to me at all. And I am, we have been down this road here in town, and and I've said this many times now. Thankfully, City Hall, City Council has become much better at this recently. But we've been down the road where they wait for people to die before, you know, Harry Howell. We had to fight and fight to get an arena named after Harry Howell. Thankfully, he was- Russ Jackson. Still waiting on that one. They've named it, but they haven't done anything yet with the, we're still waiting for the naming. I'm hoping that Russ is, by the time they get around to it, is still in good health. He's still pretty healthy. Yeah, I, I, yeah you hope. But yeah, the fact right. is, this guy should be going in while he's healthy, while he's vigorous, while he knows what's going on, while he's around. If they decide to wait for Don Cherry to die before going in, shame on them. Yes. Shame on That would be so small and so petty. Shame on them if that's the case. And I, I can't figure out any other thing they're waiting for, though. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of a uh, lot of cranky stuff this hour. Yeah, we got one more for you. Hey, listen, Don Cherry's theme song coming in—that was cool. Uh, well, you know, we're talking about builders because Don Cherry, as a media person or as a builder, should have gone to the Hockey Hall of Fame. The NBA awards were last night. This one was flabbergasting. Is that a word? I don't even know if that's Messiah a word. Messiah Jerry? Messiah Jerry fourth. was fourth in executive of the year. Yeah. Fourth. Now, I understand this was done before the playoffs, and so you're, that you don't have that to work with. Okay, so I know he was fourth. Who won? Somebody. <laughs> the guy, I believe it was the guy for uh, Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks, I think. But then they had a great year. Milwaukee finished first and all the rest, but they that guy didn't do much. He had a great team, and he didn't do much to make it any better. Um, I, you just 
you sort of just shake your head and say, it, it does lend credence. And here's the thing about it. It does lend credence to the idea that the team up here really is forgotten about. I was going to say it's a, it's a, you wouldn't want to say it's a Canadian prejudice, but that is not in his favor. Well, I don't think it's prejudice. I don't, as far as they're intentionally, it's, it's a subconscious, it's an unintentional prejudice that I think they just don't even think about the Raptors. It would be an unintentional uh, prejudice if the Canadians were voting. The Americans are voting. I'm not sure it's all that unintentional. Mm. See, I just don't... I, the Raptors, by being in the finals and everything, people had to pay attention to them. I don't know during the year, if you, if you were to talk to an NBA general managers, NBA players, and you were to say, name all the NBA teams gives you a pretty good indication of where it is in front of mind. Yeah. I bet you that the Raptors in most general managers and most players would not be mentioned in the top 12 to 15. They are now. They are now. But I'm saying up until these playoffs. Did they I, announce coach of the year? Yeah, he didn't win. No? No, Nick Nurse did not win. Now that's that's a little questionable. I Again, mean, from Milwaukee. A first, and they finished first place. Yeah, but, but Nick Nurse, first-year coach. Of course, so was the guy from Milwaukee. Except year. the difference, and why I would have thought Nick Nurse would have got more votes is, yes, Mil- again, Milwaukee, first-year coach, but he had a team that was previously, for all intents and purposes, assembled. You just had to tweak, whereas Nick Nurse had to take a completely rebuilt roster and make it into something. And yeah. win enough games with your best player sitting out for 20 or 22 games. Yeah, and they won the lion's share of the ones he sat out, too. Oh, uh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, they weren't a bad basketball team. We'll see what happens. I mean, uh, Pascal Siakam did win most improved player. That was very difficult for him not to win. Yeah. Um, but I do I do think that it's it was indicative of just how little NBA people think. And, and we're not even talking about the writers and the voters. We're talking about the players and the GMs. Now imagine you're a writer who writes for the Memphis paper or the wherever around the NBA. How much are you actually thinking about the Toronto Raptors? Zero. What do you think the hue and cry will be if Kawhi resigns in uh, Toronto? It will depend on an awful lot of things. It'll be. I think it'll depend on the term. It'll depend on like if he signs an eight-year contract, which nobody is talking about right now, or even a five-year. People are right now saying the chances are, and I don't. I mean, who knows? Who knows if there's any truth to this? But. The rumbling seems to be bet on a one or two or maybe three of the most year deal. And that will still give him time that if the Raptors have to go into a rebuild, he well, can still go and he can still go to the Clippers where he's is home and have one more contract. My bet is this. They will sign him to, I believe they can sign him to six years. So they can sign him longer than anybody else. With more money. But assuredly, if he comes back, he will sign, I think, and my basketball background and this stuff is enormous, so it's based on uh, history, that he will sign a long-term deal for as much as he can with the option after two years to request a trade and name five teams. Sure. Right, then he gets maximum money. If he doesn't like what's going on in Toronto in two years, I can say, I want to go to the Knicks. He may have the same deal. I mean, they want him badly enough. They may make the same deal with one team. You give us the team you want us to trade you to, just don't announce it. Yeah. And don't tell everyone it's only one team. But they'll, they'll want him for two years. Oh, yeah. And they can give him max money. And, and, uh, and you know, the, I don't know if the NBA is allowed to do what happens in Major League Baseball a lot now, which is this player opt-out thing, well, where well, you could do it as well. But it's not a trade then, where it's, we're going to sign you for six years but you have a player opt out after one to rip up the contract or something or after two, whatever it is. So it wouldn't have to be a trade. He could just become a free agent after two. And and I think the Toronto Raptors at this point would absolutely sign that. The Toronto Raptors can't be in a position to have Clyde Ren- Leonard say, I wanted to sign there, but, but they wouldn't agree to my terms to have the option to leave. And the reason I think he'll sign long-term is because then it's all guaranteed money. Yep. If he gets hurt, if he signs a two-year deal and gets hurt in the second year, like uh, uh, Durant, and you miss a year, he wants guaranteed money. So sign a, sign a five- or six-year deal with after the second year, I can pull a shoot if I want to. 
We will see. But the idea of Masai Ujiri finishing fourth in executive of the year, um, I didn't realize that most of the media lounges around the NBA were stocked with alcohol. Because that's the only other explanation I can come up with when the voting came around. That Boy, they missed that one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, thanks for being here today. As always, appreciate it coming in on a Tuesday this week. Um, Again, to those people who Don plunked with a golf ball yesterday, we apologize and uh, we did our best to get him off the course, but he was here today. So at least there was one day of safety on the links. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.